Brilliant. Um, it's lovely to see you all, and let me just extend a really warm welcome to you if you're new today. The, uh, the, extend the welcome that Ruth has already brought. Um, thanks to Ruth for hosting this so well this morning. Um, it's doing a brilliant job. Uh, can we put our hands together for the welcome team and all that's been going on with the welcome? Because I think uh, it's making me a lot... Um, certainly there's a lot more sugar and caffeine in my bloodstream on Sunday mornings now with the, the welcome team. That's a good thing. Uh, I think we can all agree. Amen. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks for all you're doing there, Ruth. Um, so before we, uh, before we begin... Um, I'm going to kind of change the, the mood a little bit in terms of, I'm sure you've been looking at your TV screens over the, last, uh, over the last week, really, you know, and seeing the violence and the protests in Iran. And um, it's, it's heartbreaking. And um, as a church, we, we try to uh, want to make time to, I think, pray the big prayers. <laughs> you know, I think the church is called to pray for peace on the earth. I think we're supposed to pray, when we gather, pray the big prayers. And um, even when we don't know what the solutions might be to things like this when they're going on around the world. So would you join me this morning as we pray for that situation, just for a minute or two? I'm going to use a prayer that's been written. It's been provided by 24-7 Prayer. It's on their website. It'll come up on the screens behind me. Um, it's been written by Azrin, um, who is, a, I think, is an Iranian Christian leader. Um, and she kind of understands the repression that both Kurds and women have faced in Iran over the years. So she's written this, what's written by someone who is Iranian. So if you want to stand just for another moment, um, we're going to pray. And the, the prayer should come up on the screen behind me. Um, I'm going to read it, but I'd like you to engage with it. So if you feel comfortable, you can stretch out your hand or um, get a prayer, prayerful posture. Um, and let's pray, pray this together. Heavenly Father, with a breaking heart, we lift up this country to you as we watch the pain, sorrow, and violence spreading across Iran right now. We thank you that you are indeed the God of comfort. We grieve for those hurting. We lift up especially the family of Zina, Masha, Amini, and the loved ones of those who have died or have been injured in the protests. Please show them your comfort. You alone can ease this pain. Many protesters have been arrested and their families do not know where they are. Many people are afraid to leave their homes amid the unrest. Many people are so hurt and angry they are consumed by it. Please reveal your comfort to them. Comfort my country, Lord. Hope now more than ever, Iran needs your hope. So many of our people don't know you. They are hurt. They are angry and de despairing. They desperately need hope. They feel unseen and unheard. But Father, you see all. You hear the cry of every heart. Now is the most important time for our people to hear and receive your good news, Lord. Open their hearts. Bring them near to you. Let them enter into your living hope. Courage. Lord, you have many faithful people in Iran. Strengthen your church to be courageous as they go out to share your love with the hurting. Be with them by your spirit. Protect them as they go on prayer walks, as they hold out your words of hope, as they minister to people practically. Awaken your church in Iran to be fully present with those who are buried deep in pain and anger. And awaken your global church to know how to pray and act at this time light. 
Father, we ask that no more of Iran's daughters or sons would be killed. Restrain the violence, we pray. May many lay down their weapons and refuse to use violence. We pray the fear of God would enter the hearts of Iran's leaders, that they would repent and turn to you. Lord, free our beautiful nation from oppression. Lord, dispel the darkness, the anguish and the suffering from our land. Let your light break through. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And everyone together can say, amen. You just take a, a moment to sit. Forgive me for my congestion. I've woke up this morning feeling really congested, as you might be able to hear. Hopefully, you're going to be able to hear me uh, sufficiently this morning. Bear with me. Um, but today, we're continuing the series that we're in, uh, entitled, What Kind of Church? What Kind of Church? Um, and it's looking at really some of the values that are given shape and form to this community. We're in a bit of a transition as a community. This is a year with a lot of change, and uh, we're finding our way and finding our feet together. Um, and learn how to be a church family together again. Um, and we've so far, we've looked at being a Jesus-centered church in the first week. You can access all this stuff on the podcast if you've missed out on this. But that meant that we, we, when we believe Jesus shows us what God is like. And we believe Jesus is the lens through which we can see and understand everything. We have a Jesus lens. That's what it means to be a Jesus-centered church. And our job as the church is to look to Jesus and when we do that, we find ourselves united, uh, even amidst our difference and our diversity. So that's what it means to be a Jesus-centered church. He is the center of all that we do. We've looked at being an ancient future church, week two, ancient future church, which means that we are locating ourselves in this bigger story, the story of God, one that is unfolding, one that is that we play a part in, one that we get to kind of improvise as we go and live out and embody and flesh. And the wisdom of that story tells us something different to what the culture would say, that the road to the future actually leads through the past. That there are ancient paths and ways that lead us home to God's presence, ways of being human and being alive, uh, where we find ourselves ar arriving in God's presence at home where we belong. Last week, Stephanie explored what it means for us to be a, a church that's a family, um, how we can give ourselves to communal life, how we can be generous and welcoming and hospitable, how we can step up as the church at times to fill the void that the world around us fills and help people in, in difficult situations in need, how we can hear and experience God through one another. Remember the voice note that she shared? How we can love each other as siblings in God's big family. And this week I want to continue that and I want to talk about what it means for us to be a spirit-filled church, to be a spirit-filled church. I want to take you back to that cathedral that's on fire in Paris in 2019, I think, in Notre Dame from week two. I want to take you back there for a moment. If you missed it, indeed, it was 2019. Notre Dame in Paris was on fire. And it was a worrying and tragic event on our TV screens, but it provided also um, a metaphor and gives some insight into the age we live. The author, Brian Zand, calls it a, mo a modern-day parable that goes something like this. We've been told a story, the story of modernity and secularism. That story emphasizes rationality, emphasizes utility, 
It emphasizes efficiency. It's a story that claims that there's nothing much to life beyond what we can see and observe and measure. In a world in which science and technological advancement is really kind of our hope, um, the human hope, um, all we need to get through is our smartphone in one pocket and our credit card in the other, information and currency, and we can survive this life because that's all there really is, is this life. And Notre Dame and Fire is this modern day parable because it exposed that story because well, the most, one of the most secular countries in the world and one of the most secular cities in the world is Paris and yet modern secular Parisians stopped and wept and held a vigil outside this burning cathedral. Surely it's only just bricks and mortar and we can kind of in a utilitarian spirit, just get more bricks and mortar and rebuild it. There was something that called them to grieve that and the loss of that. There's a longing and an ache that modern people, that we have for something more, for the sacred. That is the word that I would give to that, that despite this story of modernity that we're sold, there's something deep down inside all of us, even us as Christians, even us here today, even in a very in a society which is still living out in the kind of the last kind of breaths of Christendom, you know, the Bible Belt of the UK, Northern Ireland, even here where the religion is in the air, it feels like there's so much change happening around us and we can be invited into that story, that fleeting transactional modern life that, to be honest, if we're honest, leaves us feeling empty and disorientated, lacking connection, lacking meaning, lacking rootedness, something bigger than ourselves. That story is preoccupied with the self and it leaves us wanting more with an ache. I'm sure many of us could give our yes. We, we, we long for more from this life. We long for a, a true and authentic, deep connection to the place we live, the people we live with, and to our creator, to our God, to the divine. A psychologist and Christian Richard Beck says that there's a difference between an empty hole and an empty stomach. One speaks of a void, and the other speaks of a hunger to be filled. You see the difference there between an empty hole, which is just a void, and an empty stomach, which is actually designed to be filled. And I think that's so powerful, that idea that we are creatures with empty spiritual stomachs, so to speak. There's an ache, there's a longing, there's a hunger, there's a sense that we're to be filled with more. And we, and indeed, maybe we walk through life and we don't notice that, but it takes us to pay attention or it takes a burning cathedral to draw our attention to the stomach that is aching and empty, that needs filled. And that deep hunger reveals a lot to us. The problem with modernity you're listening to this from a guy. I mean, I ask Siri to turn my lights on in my house. I love science and technology. <laughs> I ask it to set the temperature. It's brilliant. I'm all about progress. I'm the guy who, like, updates his phone in the middle of meetings and all sorts. I want the update as soon as I get up. All that, I'm like that, like, like we heard on Friday. I am that guy. I love education and learning and reading and writing. I know many of you do, too. And these are wonderful, wonderful things, but there's a huge problem in modernity in that it, it reduces everything to this rationality. It might be your experience, it might not, but that really is the modern project. It reduces us to thinking, which is really, really, really great. <laughs> it's really brilliant. 
And some of us need to think more than we do, perhaps. But it leaves us with, at times, modern people stuck in our heads. That there's like, life is a problem to solve. It's a riddle to solve. It's, there's an inefficiency to correct. It's a metric to improve. That's just all there is to it. And it's a huge obstacle to faith as well. If you've ever, ever wondered, we asked that question a few weeks ago, why does faith at times, maybe this isn't your experience, maybe, maybe this isn't your experience, but for many that I speak to, for me in my own life, this has been a struggle, that we wonder why our faith isn't quite working, or it doesn't quite work the same way it used to, or it doesn't come up with the answers that we want, because we want certitude, we want answers, we are shaped well, the reason why I think that we feel like faith doesn't work is because we are shaped by that modern culture. We want certitude because it makes us feel secure. We have been trained to be modern and rational people and perhaps nothing else. And the church's project is to help us with that, to be a community together, is to help us as Jesus followers to, to, to pursue a life of faith because faith lives outside of that. Faith lives outside of our heads, believe it or not, despite what we've been taught. It involves our thinking, of course it does. I love theology and I love study and I'm, I know many of you do too. But faith that relies just solely on thinking and solely on intellect is incapable of sustaining our faith in the modern age. We will think our way into no faith at all. We will be stuck in our heads. The desire for more, the ache for the sacred, for the holy, for the more, it's an indication that we're more than just brains on legs. And we're living in this drought of modernity, this, this spiritual drought, and we need a fresh, flowing river of God to flow through, to nourish the wasteland like streams in the desert. That sounds familiar, right? streams in the desert like the psalm writers would have written about and we will not fill our cravings through rationality or problem solving alone even in the church we attempt to do that we attempt theological accuracy we attempt to get the right set of beliefs and ideas in the right order in our heads about God and the world like Christianity is that it's a set of ideas about the world and I'm informed by smarter people than myself and taught by smarter people than myself, that that's not Christianity. Christianity is a way of life. It, of course, involves completely truth and ideas on our mind. But Christianity is a way of life. It incorporates us as whole people created by God. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the more conservative side of things or maybe where you find yourself more in the center ground or more kind of theologically progressive, perhaps. It doesn't matter if you're making the right ideas about things, your plumb line. Well, it's, I'm missing the point because it's the, that's the, fundamentalism is the product of the modern age. That get, getting our thinking completely right is absolutely what Christianity faith is all about. We will not experience the spiritual crisis of our secular age by winning arguments or winning culture wars. That is not the solution. We will survive by the grace of God if we are a people who have experienced God, 
if we've experienced the goodness of God, if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, not just solely thought about it, that we've experienced God, that we are a part of a story of God seekers, a story that has been unfolding over 2,000 years in the church. And we can dig back into that to see people's journeys and how they bear witness to real and personal experience with God. I want to turn to Acts chapter 2. It'll come up on the screen. And just before that, in Acts 1, you'll remember that Jesus, he's about to return to the Father, the resurrected Christ, about to return back to the Father. And he reminds his little ragamuffin group of followers that, in fact, you'll, this is not the end. It's just the beginning. You will be sent a helper. And he, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so when we move to chapter 2, well, I'll read it, and then we can take it further. Chapter 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, Divided tongues of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. You see, we're part of a story that I want to call the story of presence. This is a, a moment in time. This is one of those ancient paths that walk through that moment at Pentecost. It's part of our story. It's the birth of the church that moment in Acts chapter 2 is the birthing of what we now know as the church of Jesus Christ when the Spirit of God was, God was poured out upon uh, his people. And it's part of this story of God's presence. If you can take five minutes to just run, I'm going to just run over this for one, for five minutes. <laughs> the story of God's presence is that we are a people marked by his presence it's essentially a story of God's presence beginning in a place, in a garden. And that moves to a, a tent. It moves to a tabernacle, a, a tent that moves around. And then it moves, if you walk through the scriptures, to a physical temple located in a particular place. And then in the New Testament, it moves again. And it locates not in a place, but in a person, Jesus the Christ. And then here in Acts 2, we see it move beyond one person and into all people. Jesus followers, the presence of God, the story of God is the story of his presence continually moving and expanding and going out again and again and again. That is the story of expansion that we are part of. And we see throughout the epistles, and we'll not get into that now, all of this language, for example, Ephesians 2, we're being knitted together into a holy temple in the Lord. These ideas of the people of God are being like a temple, like a and that the Lord dwells among us. And I have loads of scriptures here, and I'm going to move on. If you want them, you can come and get me afterwards because of time. But that's the big idea. The story of the presence is about identity as a people marked by the presence of God. And that also includes this expansion. It includes an expansion of the kingdom, that God's on the move. It doesn't just stay put, but he is on the move. His redeeming project for the world continues to move beyond and beyond the boundaries. That The disciples are now filled with the Holy Spirit and in that passage you'll see they, go sent, they get sent out onto the street. People think they're drunk because they're full of the Spirit. They don't know what's going on. 
But on that day, 3,000 people came to know Jesus. By the Spirit, their eyes, their spiritual eyes were opened and they saw Jesus as the face of God. And the church was birthed. So we have a, an identity as the people marked by the presence. We have this kind of expansion. And we also have this idea of inclusion, that the Spirit has left the building. Galatians 3 says this, that so in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. And this beautiful verse, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all children of God. And Pentecost marks this reversal. It marks this kind of spreading to all people. At one point, the presence of God was only for a select few. And now it's broken out. We want uniformity, but the Spirit of God wants unity. We want conformity, but the Spirit of God wants communion. We want segregation, but the Spirit of God wants expansion and inclusion. We want us. And the Spirit of God continues to take us to them, to the other. That picture around the throne at the end of Scriptures is about all nations and tribes and people groups around the throne. It's not a homogenous group. It's a diverse group of people that declare that Jesus is Lord. And it's by the Spirit that that can happen. And if we go on very, very quickly, we wrap up this whole little piece about the presence story. At the end of that chapter, when 3,000 people come to know Jesus in Acts 2, Peter preaches and he quotes from the prophet Joel and he paints a picture of this project, what God is doing in the world. And he says this, you might have heard this, these verses before. Through the, the prophet Joel, it said, in the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The world that God is remaking is one of people experiencing the love and the power and the presence of God. It's not a cerebral, intellectual endeavor. It's a life of encounter. It's a life filled with the Spirit, the life of God, the flowing river of God to bring nourishment to the arid desert wastelands of our lives. That's the story. A people alive with God's presence, empowered by his beautiful Spirit that makes us more like Christ each and every day. There's no empire, there's no government. Certainly not this government. No philosophy, no leader that could do that. The genius of God is at work in the, in the project of the Spirit being poured out on all. And despite the church's flaws, I'm convinced that we need to take our eyes off the Western church, our local church, and get a little bit of a bigger picture sometimes of the church. If you go into the most war-torn places in the world, there will be Christians there. The church will be there. And our history is full of the church and of Christians inspired and filled and empowered by the Spirit of God leading the way in so much social change. And so there's a genius in what God is doing through his church among 
people like us, normal, everyday people who, Gentiles like us, you know, God is using. Let's move this forward. There was a Catholic priest and theologian called Karl Rainer. In 1971, he said this, the devout Christian of the future will be either a mystic, one who has experienced something or will cease to be anything at all. And I think that's a powerful, powerful quote because I think he is right, was right, continues to be right. That the people of God are people who have experienced the divine, have experienced Christ, have experienced God. A mystic is someone who's experienced God. And as people made in the image of, if you're made in the image of God, hands up. Because <laughs> everyone should have their hands in the air. You're, ex, you're created to be a mystic. You're created to experience connection with the divine. Everyone. The experience of the Spirit used to be for a chosen few, and now it is for everyone. And contrary to popular belief, you don't have to choose between theology and thinking and the beauty of that and experiencing God. We don't have to just let the, 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 the crazy charismatic folk and the mystic folk and the desert monks all experience God and will not get that because we're kind of a little bit more cerebral here. No, we, we don't have to pick and choose. We can get to be both. We can get to experience God in all of that. There are pitfalls, pitfalls of course. There are strange things that happen in the spirit. There are also really dead places that you can get to in academic theology as well. As the church we're called to find that sweet spot where we're freed from just this purely rational, critical way of thinking. And it's tough for us as modern people. That's really tough if we're being honest with ourselves. I think we should choose, if we're going to choose one, we should choose the presence of God. We should choose to be filled with the Spirit. You remember that Jesus told Nicodemus, you're to be born again, born of the Spirit. It's the most wide open invitation ever. You don't have to be smart today or intelligent today if you're in this room. You have to be educated to experience God. You can be like a child and receive the gift of his presence. The God who's with you in the hospital when your child has broken their arm or when you're going through difficult relationship problems or when you're trying to serve your family in their old age. He's with you. He's there. We don't have to think our way to God. We can experience the generous love and grace. We can be carried by God. We can experience that. Blaise Pascal was one of the most famous mathematicians ever, and he said that the heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. Which just basically means that there are ways of knowing beyond up here. We kind of know things, kind of here, intuitively. I think if we're aligned more and more in prayer, I think we can really trust our intuition and our heart. I think God is speaks to us through that. And it's there in Psalm 42, the yearning of the psalmist is the soul of a mystic as the deer pants for flowing streams. 
So my soul longs for you, O God. My thirst, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I come and behold the face of God? Jeremiah 29, God promises, when you search for me, you will find me. We're to be mystics, we're to be seekers of God, pursuers of his presence, pursuers of experiencing him. And here's the thing, Redeemer, that there is, I think, a lie that I've been caught up in at times that that has to be somewhat dramatic. You know, we got to have a, a massive dream in the night or have, you know, angels river dancing on the end of the bed or whatever it might be to encounter God. And I believe that that actually can happen. In fact, some of you have those experiences, I know. I can point to some myself. But often the Spirit of God invites us in into the small. And some of you already know that too. And I'm going to go back to our psychologist friend Richard Beck from the beginning when he said that you can experience God in a multitude of ways, diverse ways, big and small. But he suggests three. I'm going to run through them really quickly. Three ways that we might even begin to experience God. I'm going to borrow from what he's written. I hope, I hope it helps today. I hope maybe this could be the thing you could take away if you can locate yourself in one of these three areas. He says there's assurance, there's mission, and there's conviction. Assurance, mission, and conviction. So he says that sometimes our experience of God is a revelation about our identity. That we get an assurance of God's love for us. That's experiencing God. Consider Jesus' experience at his baptism when he comes up out of the water and he hears the Father declare, you are my beloved in whom I delight. And Jesus begins his ministry with this unveiling, this moving into the world with just this deep sense of the Father's love and approval. Many of you have had these experiences just like Jesus, a strong sense of God's love and approval. A famous example comes from the life of John Wesley. He was the founder of Methodism. And on hearing a reading from Martin Luther concerning the gospel of grace, he said he felt his heart strangely warmed. And that flood of emotion was this revelation, this experience of God's love for him. There was an assurance that he was given. I bet some of you have had those experiences where your heart has been strangely warmed by the grace of God, maybe an intense experience of God's love being poured out upon you, perhaps in a conversion experience, perhaps in other ways, in listening to a song, some poetry, hearing a sermon, reading a book, walking in nature, or simply savoring a moment, we find our hearts strangely warmed by the grace and the love. And those words over you, and maybe you need to hear this today, that you are my beloved child in whom I delight. It's an experience of God beyond assurance. Perhaps some of you have experienced the Spirit of God in your life through mission. You remember Moses' encounter with the Lord at the burning bush? It's a great example. Moses is sent to Pharaoh, let my people go. You can think of Samuel and the voice of God as well, or Isaiah being sent out by God. Here I am, send me. And I bet there are people in this room that have had those experiences of the Spirit. 
a sense of being called to something, to give your life to something, to give yourself to something, that the strangely warmed heart kind of leads to this passion for the kingdom, for mission, for the good way of God. In a similar way, on September 10th, 1946, Mother Teresa was riding on a train from Calcutta to a retreat in the Himalayan foothills. And on the train ride, Jesus spoke to her and told her to abandon her vocation as a teacher, to work in the slums of Calcutta, to care for the city's poorest and sickest people. It's an experience of God a kind of a sense of the mission that we're called to. Perhaps you can resonate with that today. I know many of you do. Maybe you have friends who have a call to adopt children, foster children. Maybe you have friends who have started nonprofits. They felt called to do that. Or to get sober, to volunteer, to community service, to be better neighbors, to join a protest, to devote themselves to their marriages or parenting or friendships. We get a nudge of the Spirit to invite that person out for coffee. Or to offer some encouragement to a co-worker. God isn't silent or absent. He's calling you and me to make ourselves available, to pay attention to His Spirit, to the nudge, here I am, send me. Assurance, mission, and the last thing that Richard Beck talks about is conviction. You know those moments when you sense the Holy Spirit convicting you that our love needs to be bigger than it is, it needs to expand further. We've ignored some people, we've excluded some people, we've treated some pe people less than we would want to at times, and there's a convicting kind of beautiful, gracious, gentle ministry of the Spirit that calls us, that speaks to us, that draws us back. We see that in the, in the whole story of Peter um, and his trance on the rooftop when he sees this sheet of unclean animals and he's not allowed to eat the unclean animals and the Spirit of God says what you've made, what God has made clean you've, you must not call profane. And Peter goes out and he takes the gospel even further. He takes the gospel to the Gentiles because of that passage, because of that experience, that mystical experience of God. I don't know where you're at today, whether you've experienced the Spirit comfort you and reassure you that you are a beloved child of God. I don't know whether you've experienced the Spirit call you to something, to give your life to something bigger, to a mission, to a cause maybe even to serving the least of these. I don't know whether you have had the conviction of the Spirit to call you into bigger and better ways, to serve those that you perhaps have ignored or to, to be less selfish and to be more like Christ. I don't know how you've experienced God, but the point is that we are to experience the Spirit of God and His Spirit is so gracious and good to us. We're called to be a Spirit-filled people. And that is the way in which we can survive the modern age. To be a people that are animated and encountering the Spirit of God. I'm going to just finish with this story and we're going to move to communion. It was Sunday the 14th of April 1996 at Augusta National in Georgia. That's the golf course final day of the U.S. Masters. 
In one of the most prestigious competitions in the world, and with one round of golf left to play, Greg Norman went into the day with a six-shot lead ahead of Nick Faldo. Nick Faldo was second on the leaderboard. With only 18 holes to play, he was favorite to win his first Masters Championship. Don that famous green jacket, enter the history books. And he did enter the history books, but not for the reason that he had hoped. Nothing went right for him all day. His game collapsed. And he ended up dropping 11 shots, and he threw away his chance, having been in a commanding lead. And the world of golf has never witnessed such a downfall in one day of golf. Maybe you remember it. Tired and dejected, Greg went up to congratulate Nick, reaching out his hand for the customary handshake. But instead, in a moment of compassion, Nick Faldo threw his arms around Greg Norman and hugged him on the green, shocking the world of TV viewers. And these two men who had been slugging it out and competing all day were there on the green, embraced, and Greg Norman was reduced to tears. It had been a grueling defeat, and in that moment, something broke in him. And it was said that he was one of the most ice-cold golfers on the circuit. He'd learned that from his father, to be ice-cold because he'd once remarked that when growing up at times, he longed for a hug from his father. And his father would always just shake his hand. And here he was on the 18th green at Augusta in front of the world, and he was locked in an embrace. And something in him broke. And he said to the media afterwards, I wasn't crying because I lost. I've lost a lot of golf competitions before. I was crying because I've never had a hug like that in my life. And there's something about the presence of God that breaks through, that grounds us for something that's real, for an intimacy that we are made for, that we long for. Just like Greg Norman had longed for an embrace from his father, we long for an embrace from our divine father. And the invitation is there for us. G.K. Chesterton says that our religion sometimes is more a theory than a love affair. We're invited into a love affair, Redeemer. We're invited into experiencing the goodness and the love of God. And if you don't know that today, I want to declare over you that you are loved and beloved, that indeed God has a mission for your life, a call on your life, and that he wants to make you beautiful like Christ. And he has not given up on you. Perhaps we could just stand just for a moment as I uh, invite the band up. Because I just want to just take, take a moment just to encourage us to, just to consider like what the Lord might be nudging us towards this morning. Because there's just this radical 
egalitarian, oceans-wide invitation to everyone to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And we don't need to conjure it up. We're not really about hype here in Redeemer. We're not really about hype anyway. We couldn't conjure it up if we wanted, probably. (laughs) We don't need to. Because the Spirit works in the whisper, works in the nudge. And if you've got angels dancing at the end of your bed doing a river dance, you can tell us afterwards. (laughs) Because you're welcome here too. But maybe we could just take a moment just to wait. Is that okay? I know we've taken an extra bit of time this morning and I want to honor time as much as we can. We've got to to come to the table. Um, Maybe we can give it another 10 minutes just to be released to go if that's okay. If you need to go, please do head on and with our blessing, of course. I just thought it would be good for us this morning just to wait on the Lord. And maybe some of you in this room haven't done that in an awfully long time. And you're going to go to lunch after today and or you're going to go home and there's going to be dishes to do or you're going to do whatever and there's not going to be like a little moment like this again for the rest of the day or maybe even the week or maybe even the month. So maybe we could just rest in the presence of the Lord and just wait. And John's going to play behind us but we're just going to give it space. And I'd love to encourage you, you don't have to do this but the Spirit is a person and that person is a gift and we get to receive that gift and all we need to bring to a moment like this is a receiving posture. So if you're comfortable, you could put your hands out in a receiving posture. There's nothing magical about that. You don't have to do that. But in your heart, perhaps the thing you can bring, if you don't have any answers today, and if you have a shipwreck of a life today, that you need the Lord to come into today, you can give your yes to him. You can say yes to the Lord. And that is all he wants, is a receptivity. He just wants a willing heart that falls on his grace. And so maybe we can just wait on the Lord and ask him to do what only he can do. Let's do that. Lord, come, we pray. As we pause to be still, Lord, as we breathe slowly, we pray you would center our scattered senses upon your presence. Come. Come and rest on us now. Come and minister to the deep ache, to the longing. Come and fill us up with your spirit and fill up the empty spiritual stomach. Come and embrace us. and the Lord sees you and he knows you he sees you and he knows you Lydia the Lord sees you and knows you smiles over you 
Jed, the Lord loves you. Paul, the Lord has unfinished business. There's more. There's more to this journey. says you're on the right track just keep going keep focused he's pleased with you yeah Lord we just wait again would you come rest on us minister to us remind us of your love and your goodness and your grace We're going to begin to sing and we're going to come to the table now. And I'm just reminded of that passage in Matthew 7. And Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give gifts to those who ask him? So as we come to the table, I'd love us to continue in this posture. And I'd love to encourage you to just get in touch with that hunger and just give your yes again to the Lord. Ask him to fill you up with the grace that is represented in the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And I pray that we can experience the Spirit a little this morning. The rest of the Spirit, the peace of the Spirit, the lightness of the yoke, the healing, the guiding, all of that. Our comforter, our friend, our empowerment. As you come to the table, may you bring an expectation, a yes, an openness to allow the Spirit to move and fill you up. John's going to lead us. I've got one more thing to say. I'm going to move aside, which is that we're not doing click and collect on the bread and wine this morning. Um, the girls here, Orla, Evie, and Isabella are going to help me. But when you come up, I want you to receive it from them and take it immediately here. Don't take it back to your table. Take it here. You can have juice or wine. That's the only rule there is. Um, is that cool? And we're going to sing and we're going to worship and we're going to continue to enjoy God's presence. What are you, John?